Hello everyone, welcome to Outspoken. I am your host, Justin White. This is episode 78. Uh, I hope that everybody is staying safe and healthy and staying home and staying sane. Uh, I recommend walking for sanity, but uh, I also recommend not driving to go somewhere to walk. Just walk out your front door and walk around um, so that we're not unnecessarily spreading things. That's my suggestion. I think it's also the official suggestion from the authorities. Um, I've spent a good deal of my life not listening to or obeying the authorities uh, or just straight up refuting that they are the authority. But um, not in this case. I think that if ever there's a time to follow the rules, this is it. So that's the last I'm going to say about it for now. Um, This interview took place before the quarantine was uh, enacted. And uh, so we don't talk about it at all, which hopefully will be a nice change of pace and take your mind off things for a bit. Uh, My guest is a very good friend of my friend Maccabee, who you can hear in episode 71. Uh, His name is Jeremy. And we had never met before this call. This is a remote interview because he lives in Maine. I live in California. Um, So, yeah, let's hear this droid make a simple request, and then we'll talk to Jeremy. Looks like your waveform is is better than my waveform, which is, it's not the first time I've had that. That's that's been a problem for me in my life. Bad, bad waveforms. Yeah, bad waveforms. <laughs> I've seen a couple professionals about it, but there's, as you know, not a lot you can really do about it. No, you have a great waveform. I'm uh, <laughs> having only seen it for a few seconds now. I'm, I'm already yeah. impressed. So uh, don't be self-conscious about it. And, um, yeah, if you're, you're coming in loud and clear, so perfect. And I can make adjustments too, if need Got be, you. as long as it's not too loud or too. Um, if you can be sort of consistently the distance that you are from the mic. Yeah. I tend to be a loud-ish talker. Okay. That's good. Mostly to compensate for my uh, shortcomings in the waveform department. <laughs> you got to make up for it somehow. You gotta... um, the only other issue is that there can be a bit of a lag. And if we both end up talking at the same time, there's kind of like a some digital confusion occasionally. Okay. Uh, but I'll try not to interject when you're talking and then all of the things that we say that are funny, we'll just like, we'll have to laugh perfectly. In sync. <laughs> okay. No, we'll figure it out. Yes, exactly. I have a um, problem with talking over people anyway. <clears throat> so I will, I will make an extra special effort not to do that too. Well, I, I that's very kind. Um, <laughs> So we'll both not interrupt each other. And yeah. just a bunch of gaps. Yeah. A bunch of dead air. Um, cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate your willingness, given that we've never met before today. I'm excited about it. A little intimidated, but mostly, like I said, because I listened to people that you had. Yeah, I listened to the, to, to the show, and there was some real... Um, 
um, chemistry and also just, you know, clever, clever writery people. Clever writery people are good at stuff like this. I'm, I'm not a <laughs> highbrow. I'm not as good a writer, so I'm not, not off the cuff, cuff clever. I fall back on curse words because I'm from Baltimore. Well, you're in good company because uh, Michiganders swear as well. Yeah, that's true. I think of that as Michigan, though I've never been, is a little bit of a um, sister city, like blue collar, you know, great sleazy bars. and Definitely. Um, you know, and I've known a couple of Michiganders, but it's got the, I think, more of the Midwestern, like, don't be too weird thing going on where in Baltimore you would get beaten up for not being weird enough. Okay. That's the distinction. Weird there. I'm from Ann Arbor. So we were, we had a pretty high weird quotient. uh, Like the Coen brothers and Sam Raimi are all from there. I think from Ann Arbor. Are the Coen brothers? I I don't know. Right. Sam Raimi. I think, I, I think you're right about him. Yeah. And baby Bruce Campbell. I know they all like made movies together when they were young before they got famous or younger. So, that might be a, a history I'm unaware of. Um, Bob Seeger. Right, of course. Uh, Iggy Pop, if if he claim when he claims it. Sometimes he yeah. claims outside of Ann Arbor. I um I worked on a movie in my um very salad days in Los Angeles. I edited a movie by a um, very ambitious young whippersnapper director who made a uh, a movie about uh, cybernetic zombie assassins oh, in the movie. And um, the scientist who um, sort of is building them in a lab is Ron Ashton from the Stooges. Oh, that's awesome. It was really cool. Like when he was from, you know, he was from Ann Arbor, the filmmaker. And of course, you know, the celebrities who were still left there are are limited, but but Ron Ashton remained and was in his you know thirty thousand dollar movie. It was pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah. Do you remember the name of it, or can you say the name of the movie? I'm trying to remember. Oh man. Uh, yes, Legion of the Night. Legion oh, of the Night. Name. It is a good name. It was the guy was a very clever marketing marketing genius, but he just. Um, some people can take making $30,000 movies and like manage to blow that into making bigger and bigger movies. And the filmmaker seemed like he was always going to be kind of a, uh, a genius rough and tumble filmmaker at a, at, at this very kind of, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like at, at, at a micro budget level, that was, that was kind mm-hmm. of the thing sleazy he loved the sleaziness of it and and it suited him <laughs> all of his films are like brilliant first films like each one every every and they never stopped being like wow this guy's really gonna when he makes another movie and he really gets it all down it's gonna be great he's really gonna break through totally that's what, cool so, so what see. do you sorry you go ahead you ask a question and then i'm gonna ask you a question okay <laughs> Will you be able to hold on to it? What's you'll, that? You'll be able to hold the question? I can hold it, yes. Okay. Um, well, I, I mean, mine might be a, an open-ended one. They usually are. But um, you, you referred to those as your salad days you're, when you're an editor, a film editor in L.A.? Is that? I made move. yes. I, I worked in Los Angeles for a long, long time. Um, 
and had a kind of a whole life there. It was always my dream to to make horror movies, and that was what burned in me for a very very long time. Um, wow. Now I don't. I make I make food on the East Coast in Maine, but that was that was the life I lived for a long time there. That was like I'm so glad I did it. I'm so glad I lived it. But I'm so glad that I get to have a whole new other chapter. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I, well, I want to hear about both now. But uh, what what do you? Uh, I were you always an editor, and when you worked in LA, um, were you trying to make movies? You were trying to. I did. I made. I made a bunch of movies. I was. Okay. By the time I was like in my early twenties, um, film. Had, this seems like such not your show to be talking about what I did in movie stuff. Having listened to a bunch of other stuff where people are like really talking about actual life things, but I will I will try not to like rush to the summation, but I will summarize so that we can talk about important life stuff like killing ducks. Um, okay. <laughs> we I always wanted to make movies, and then. I went to film school in Boston and hated it. And in the middle of that, went to LA and actually uh, moved in with with Mac in Los Angeles because we'd gone to high school together and we're super close, you know, growing up together. And um, pretty reticently finished my education on the East Coast. But in that moment where I arrived in 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 LA and and I was twenty years old and. Um, realized that if you had a work ethic and you just like, I had no reason to go home other than to party with my friends. So I was happy to, you know, work 20 hour days. And, and there was a handover of sorts between the older guys who were trained on film to edit and editing then especially was still like, um, like you were a magician if you knew how to do that. It was like right. secret knowledge. There wasn't right. computer editing did not really exist. So if you could splice film and I'd grown up doing that, just making stop motion movies and stuff with my friends and I Yeah. Did you have the like little super eight? Oh editor? yeah. You had the splicing machine and everything? Fully. And you know, like I've explained this to my kids who don't really have a grasp. So much of this stuff, I mean, in one lifetime. So much has changed with that. But like my parents got me the camera because they knew that I was going to make stuff, but they didn't pay for the film or the processing. And, and it was like three bucks a roll back then for three minutes? $12. $12. And it was a three Whoa. minute, it was like two minutes and 40 seconds or something. Right. For, you know, 13 bucks. And then you had to develop it. And realize like, oh, I didn't have enough light. Most of what I shot looks like just blurry dark stuff. Um, right. So yeah, I did that growing up and then was able to kind of be there for the beginning in LA of technology. I'm not a computer guy, but I wasn't afraid of it either. And so okay. I was able to take a lot of jobs. You know, I worked really cheap or free. And so I, in the first, like between the age of 20 and 24, I think I cut like two dozen movies. Like I just did it. That's awesome. And it was great. It was amazing. But very few of them were actually 
um, like it wasn't like I was making films for Roger Corman and I could be like these great movies and I was working with Ron Howard and you know <laughs> but you were Ron learning Ron Ashton did his movie I did his movie you know what I mean that's awesome I love I love that you did that one the cybernetic uh, <laughs> future freaks um okay so then you you changed your life completely did you do it all at once mm, yeah kind of so yeah yeah I did we moved to Maine we told our families in like around Thanksgiving that uh, we were moving to Maine. We, we like, we had a very, my wife and I had met four years before, five mm-hmm. years before and, and had kids right away and fell madly in love and had a very kind of, um, you know, we met in downtown LA and the post-punk Los Angeles when she lived in like a, amazing SRO hotel that had been the Academy Award, you know, hosting spot in the thirties. And now was like, you know, obliterated and since has become high end again. Um, and just had that life with kids and, um, and, but secretly, you know, in bed at night, we're like, this is not going to work. This is not, this is not a way to raise a family the way we wanted to. And I had, you know, I, I, I made movies. I, I directed a bunch of, of genre films, which is my dream, but it was never really, um, I mean, it was always a more of a money drain than a money maker. And I went from editing feature films to editing um, marketing documentaries, basically like the behind the scenes specials and stuff for okay. studios. That was a great living. But then when DVD started to die off a little bit, die back, um, I had to go to reality TV and I just hate television. I just hate it. I couldn't <laughs> get a boner to go to work. It was just, it sucked. And, and um, even in doing it and working hard, I kept being told like, you're going to be, you'll be on the, you know, network side. So you're coming up. Like I would started at the bottom of the totem pole and it's, I'm not like bragging. I'm more saying, it's not that hard or complicated. They just want you to work 20 hours, seven, six days a week, every day. And then you can, you can be rich and part of reality TV. It's just, it's oh, not that. Oh, and it, yeah, I hated it. And it so rough. drove the train to, to make a big move. And I cared about food. We saw food Inc when it came out and it really, you know, it was already kind of conscious about stuff with food but then I was like, oh, my God, every animal I eat has lived like a science fiction hellscape. That's horrible. It's crazy. Um, so, yeah. So all at once, to answer your question of five minutes ago, we picked up and moved our one-year-old. And my daughter was three and my wife was finishing grad school and starting a new career. And we took a leap. This is the part where that's actually... I mean, it's all, not to be like, it's all interesting. This is the super wacky part that I think people were like, oh, they'll be back there. This is crazy. We moved <laughs> into a house in mid-coast Maine, like basically off the water with a dude who looks like, like exactly when I say a Maina, like a, you know, a guy in the, who built his own house in the woods. You right. get a big, burly, like six, four man 
with a big long beard and bushy eyebrows and 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 like you know bib overalls and a vintage flannel shirt that's falling apart but is impossibly thick and that's the guy we moved in with and he has a school called the stone soup institute in harpswell maine where basically one student at a time you move in with him you have to live with him for a year so you see the entire start to finish from you know planting seeds to harvesting to winter and and wow. he has no hot water we you know brought our babies there and and it, you know heated heated you know water on a stove or over the fire to give them baths moved in the middle of winter and learned how to do you know everything i had never split wood or killed a chicken or milked a cow or really saved seed i'd had a little garden on the west coast because i was interested in it but i learned in in the 10 months we lived with him because we moved early we bought a farm i learned more and had my life change more really probably than since like you know eighth grade wow that's crazy did you how did you know that you would be up for doing all that stuff having never done it i really hated tv I hated working in reality TV. And honestly, I had, um, and I I don't know why I feel funny about saying this. I know you're on the West Coast and I know you have kids and I always, like I have a lot of, my dearest friends are still in California, family, you know, and and my sister is raising kids in New York. And I always think that there's a, um, when I talk about our reasons, I always want to like, be like i'm not judging other people or being like the way you're doing it is wrong with you know people raise children successfully like you know i have best friends who raise kids in new york city super successfully so no judgment to any of that but we would go out to restaurants in la and there'd be a table where the mom the dad the and both kids were all just on their phone and not interacting and their tvs on the walls and everybody's i love movies and i love you know i mean i use a computer i'm not like you know yeah but that sucks that's that scene yeah anywhere it's just such a shame that that's what happened overnight like it's a shame that that was our inclination like it's so it's hard for us to fight it isolate and alienate one another by you know staring at somebody else's life while we're amidst actual living people i even think sometimes the parents who are in san francisco or you know and it's not again no judgment but when i go to the suburbs like the actual suburbs you know back to baltimore to the suburbs the assumption that your kid is in second grade the sort of sense that well my kids in second grade and all the kids have phones and that's it's time now we're there and that's how we're showing love now that stuff i think is actually worse because you may have a harder time fi- finding a co- kind of coalition of parents who are you know like don't they always say that all the all the parents in silicon valley don't let their kids have phones and are really careful about that I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there's a, a higher, you know, incidence of restriction amongst those people because they know the damage it can do more yeah. than anything. Yeah. But I think most 
it doesn't seem to matter anymore. I see parents who, you know, for certain are aware of, of what the damage is and they just have given up. Like, it's just, they allow it. And, um, and sometimes I'm that parent, like not, you know, not all the time, but there, there are times where I'm like, well, what, what the hell difference is another, like, I, I can't stand that she got, I, second grade to me is way too early, but even junior high, which is when we got a phone for our girl, is too early. Yeah. Wouldn't have done it that way again, I, if I could, you know, that's something I would definitely take back, is getting a fucking smartphone for a kid. Do you feel like you've seen negative, uh, like, I just worry so much about the the pressures of social media. I just made so many bad decisions as a teenager over and over and over getting in the car with people while I was on acid who were on acid and letting them drive me around and going to clubs downtown for punk rock shows that just definitely had MRSA on the walls. Like that just not good at making those decisions. So I worry that, that the new version of that is just, you know, and I was mean. And I think probably that that's part of being a teenager too. And that really, that seems like where the real um, problems come in, right? Really hurting each other's feelings. And Yeah. Did you say you were mean? You, I was mean. I was mean in high school. Uh, was, can, are you able to talk about it at all? Or is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I grew up doing a lot of community theater with my family. I fell in love with, you know, performing and making movies and just I was a weird kid I couldn't play sports I was chubby and I was but I was like totally had a probably thanks to my parents a reasonably intact healthy ego about it just didn't care I was like mm, I don't like sports that's sports are lame I like girls and so I go to you know acting school on the weekends and hang out with girls and that's good with me and um and then I had like weirder I went to weird my parents took me out of public school halfway through first grade because they uh told my parents they brought him in and told them that I was high functioning but but um you know mentally retarded that they were sure of it and that they you know could consider special programs but that I was maybe never really going to be a reader and I mean just crazy and so what it you know weird little school and first, it, first grade they said that first grade halfway through first grade that's insane i think i know why i've thought about this a lot over the years one of the teachers told me because i was you know definitely hyperactive that um there were cameras behind the clocks where the principal could watch you in your class <laughs> that's and, creepy as hell so the principal was watching and you had to be good for that. And instead I chose to do shows for the principal in class throughout class. It was like, you know, all the other kids are listening. I'm going to look at the clock and do shows. And that was, and make faces and whatever else. So that's maybe why I'll never know. That's my guess. Um, and then I did these weird schools all my life. And the first like, regular school was still the school that where I met our, our mutual friend Mac. And it was a super weird, liberal, fancy, you know, you rode horses. That was one of the like, 
one of, you know, every semester you picked a different um, um, uh, athletic thing to do. And, and, and I, you know, I was only there for a short time. I was there for, for a year and a half, but it was a really impactful year and a half for me because I met, you know, I went from being like a kid in ties doing theater and taking ballet every day to knowing cool punk rock kids with, you know, yeah. I mean that. Who and, rode horses. Yeah. So yeah, my, 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 my athletics were walking in the woods, uh, first semester, archery, second semester, uh, uh, horseback riding, and then a kind of another version of walking in the woods, which was called like woods exploration. Um, so, and then I got caught smoking pot at that school halfway through sophomore year and, um, was not a good student anyway. Just was not academically where everybody else was. They were going to kick me out. And I think um, a lot of people came from like these families where they'd gone for like generations. Right. And uh, so I switched schools. And when that happened, I was already, I had a good um, pushback. Like if somebody was going to beat me up or be mean again, Baltimore, there's lots of that. I just could say something so much meaner and more cutting fast to make them freak out before they could hit you. But then once, once I got in trouble at school and I kind of lost this world, it, it made me um, darker, meaner. And it took me a little while to unravel that. It really took going to college. And how did it, ta- how did college like interacting with other people at college taught well, you? How to- like having a reset. I wasn't that guy who'd been, you know, the guy at, 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 at park school who got caught smoking pot in the woods and kicked out and everybody would. Yeah. It, it, I got to, I got to restart and I needed that. And you already knew you didn't like the path you were walking on. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, I was, I did not want to be a mean guy forever, but I was glad to have that. But it felt good when you're 15, 16 to yeah. have a way to, I remember one time I was at at somebody's house, at like a house party, and there was this um, very, very kind of influential punk rock guy who was really tall and lanky and shirtless and a leather jacket with a mohawk, and he just always would fuck with me because I was chubby and I wore a tie, and that was kind of my thing. And um, I waited till he took acid uh, that day, that night at the party. And then I stood in the kitchen while he was tripping on the, like it had one of those wall phones, like the beige, you know, wall mount kitchen phone. Totally. With the long coil cord. Of course. With it's all kinked and yeah. yeah. And I was saying like, Hey, I'm not going to say his name just in case. Cause you know, I was like, Hey man, it's your mom on the phone. She wants to know why you dress like that for church. She wants to know why you've been embarrassing her at all of the fa- like I just was like until he was reduced to tears on the floor and when he was done I handed him the phone and I was like don't fuck with me anymore that kind Whoa. of mean. like that's mean that's I'm so embarrassed it's a good story but it's also like it's terrible to be mean to people well it is indeed I agree but also when you're a kid and you feel put upon or attacked or you are attacked you develop defenses and yeah. sometimes you sharpen them into an offense because it's a good way, as you said, of avoiding certain situations. You know, like if there's a certain unpleasantness that you know you're at risk of enduring, then having a, some tools to avoid that makes sense. 
Yes. And, and it, you found it. You found, I did the same thing and I, I fucking hated myself while doing it. But like you said, it's kind of, it's empowering and it's, you know, there's a charge from it because you're yeah. actually wielding some power. And if you feel powerless in other aspects of your life, it makes perfect sense. And people, yeah. why it happens. I mean, that's why so many bullies exist. But uh, we have to take care of that now, I think. Especially as parents. I'm very yeah, we have to teach that. a new way, a new way to deal with stuff because that's never worked and it's never going to work. Okay, so let's talk about your your food. Your you changed your whole life and brought your family or your whole family moved to yeah. be farmers. Or you are a farmer. Correct? I feel funny about saying farmer because it sounds like um, we're successful at it on a <laughs> level that 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 like people picture like uh, you know some some like social media video of your CSA where there's a guy standing in a field and there's so much food growing in that field. Right. Imagine like a couple garden beds of tomatoes, a lot of them, some slugs destroyed and like, it's more disappointing than it is successful. And that's okay. more of what we're doing. Okay. So you're not a farmer, but you farm, you attempt you're farm homesteading. And so I'm really good at, at raising livestock. Animal, I've always loved animals and I, 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 I uh, have like a, a, a special empathy for, for certain animals anyway. And so I'm good at that. I'm mediocre to crappy at, at growing food, but we do it. And, and mostly the focus is on, you know, growing stuff with no chemicals and no you know, nothing creepy, no, no Santo for our family. And, and especially like the baby drinks bottles, you know, four bottles a day or whatever. 
and I milk the, uh, we have goats, dairy goats, and I milk the goats every day, and all the chicken he eats comes from the farm, and today I killed six ducks, and and so we'll eat duck for the next couple of weeks, and so there's, you know, yeah, some of that. How, um, how does that square, how, how does, I'm not, I don't want to phrase it in a way that you feel judged, but I'm no, trying to. All. No, no, no. I, I love to talk about, especially like the, the, um, I mean, it's, it's not easy and I don't think it's supposed to be. And I don't, I would never feel judged. You should, you should ask everything that is top of mind about it. Thank you. Well, I'm actually, you know, I'm, I'm quite, uh, I quite respect that way of life. I've never been able to achieve it myself in terms of, I, I mean, it's clear that you're coming from an ethical standpoint to me that, that you can love and have sympathy and empathy with and for uh, animals and still give them a humane end. And uh, so I think that's the best possible way to do it if you're going to do it. And I've just never been able to, envision myself being the one who actually does the killing and the event, whether it's ducks or chickens or pigs or anything, I just don't. So I want to know how you do it, how you're able to do it. Oh, so earlier before we even like started recording or whatever, you asked me about my dad and I was like, well, I'm on to another chapter. And I had to take a nap before we, um, we started because the days where I have to take anything's life, like the the second worst days on the farm, we um, I hate it. And and but I think it's important, and I say it in front of my kids. Like I think that they, you know, not to make them feel guilty, but more to say like, you know, I don't like to kill animals. I don't think that's nice. And I try to do it super respectfully when I'm doing it. I I obviously want it to be swift. And painless, but I also honestly articulate out loud. I'm not a religious, like, you know, it's not like you're talking to somebody who's like super, um, you know, tied up in the, the religious aspect of any of this, which I think does happen with farmers, which I think is lovely, but that's not the case with me. But I do thank them for their life and for providing um, nutrition for my family. And, you know, I always hope that they had a great life on my farm in the case of the ducks, they were a neighbors. Um, and she just couldn't, she raised them for a year and her mom's in hospice and she was overwhelmed and needed somebody to process her ducks. Gave me organically fed raised ducks, six of them to, to dispatch. Um, did I answer your question? I, I, you asked how I do it. Um, and really, it always sucks, but it always, because I have kids, I think it would be a lot harder if it was just um, my wife and me or or if I was just alone because you'd be like, well, you can just eat vegetables. You'll be fine eating beans and rice. But because right. it, there's kids involved, I want them to learn that stuff and I want them to understand how food systems work and not have that disconnect. People always say, you know, back to the baby boomer thing. <laughs> I could never eat something that wasn't in a styrofoam package with saran wrap around it at the grocery store. But right. that sucks. That's exactly the opposite of how you should know. 
That's like, you know, yeah. never yeah. water that wasn't in a plastic bottle that was just a sip so I could open another one and throw that one away. And it's the opposite of how we should be doing it. It's what insane. Say, sorry, say the last part again. I I not to say everybody should kill their own animals. Obviously, that is like not rational at all. But um, not, not anymore. I mean, there was a time when it when it made sense. Um, then that's what they that's what small village populations would be able to do. But on our scale, we need to farm meat if we're going to eat meat in the quantities that we seem to think we need to. Yeah. Uh, but I think we eat an insane amount in this country for sure and i think lots of places way way too much like, have you been to asia at all have you traveled in, in I i've traveled mostly in europe and around canada and mexico and the u.s and a little bit in yeah mostly europe no asia a little tip of africa but go on <laughs> about asia sorry when i have been to asia and i see the way, you know, even like you go to a Thai restaurant, right? Or, 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 or Indian restaurant and there's a sauce and there's pieces of meat and there's pieces of, you know, potato and there's pieces of tomato and there's pieces of onion. And it's all kind of, it's a bunch of stuff, right? It's not like, I want to eat a steak. You are eating lots of things and meat is but a, a component of a meal. That right. seems so much more appropriate to me that and 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 you know, you kill a chicken, that chicken should last you a week. That should feed a family, even right. a small chicken. And you should find ways to make each, you know, the that whole notion the like Native American, you know, making the feet into soup and the neck into soup. I guess it's a lot of soup stuff, but still Yeah, mostly soup stuff. Yeah. It, yeah. it it does make sense, and it does, um, you know. You mean coming in a, a bucket, two at a time, isn't the way we're supposed to eat them? Back to the fried chicken, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's pretty obvious we've gone astray in that regard uh, in in our in human society. Um, so I think it's somewhat. I mean, you were saying you're not religious, and I don't I don't think it needs to be a religious right that you're having it's it's more of a an acknowledgement of consciousness and it's gratitude for what you're getting from them giving their life yeah and in fact we should be doing that all the time with anything we eat um and it actually will benefit us to do so because it will be passing on that energy through whatever it is we're consuming agreed and, that, and that's the other aspect of you know, the factory farm and all the other processing that goes on with our food. Yeah. The, level, the levels of disconnection and the, the amount of waste is just craziness, but it's also putting in that energy, that sort of shitty, like, I don't care about this. It's just my job and I have to make a living. You know, if that's what's going into the food we're eating. You want to hear something crazy? What? So, um, you know, again, I've only been doing this a couple of years. I mean, I really do not, no, I'm not from Maine. These people are very um, hardy. Like they just they know stuff. They they the Yankee ethos is 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 intrinsic and it's incredible to me. It's not how I grew up. It's not, but I'm learning. One of the things so we got pigs very early on on our farm, 
And I was really nervous because pigs require a huge amount of input, right? You have to feed them a lot. Um, and we had a guy, uh, he was our plow guy. He plowed, plowed our driveway and then um, we started talking and he wanted to also homestead. He left a life behind of selling used cars and we became friends. And he basically moved into our barns because the way farms are built in the, you know, we bought an old, old farm and it's, you know, definitely more gray gardens than it is, you know, a, a wedding barn, but, but we're working on that. Um, okay. So in the, the 1820s and thirties, these barns, farms were built where you could leave your house, walk out the back door into another barn, into another barn, into another barn and never go outside all winter long. Like you just are feeding your livestock. So he lived in the next building over, which was not insulated or heated. It was just incredible. But he really wanted pigs. So we acquiesced and said, okay, we're going to get pigs, but how are we going to feed them? And he said, oh, that's easy. We'll go to the local, like, you know, Ralph's basically. It's called Hannaford here. It's the big chain. And uh -huh. they throw out food every week. And we just have to make friends with the right person. And they'll give us a truckload of their produce. And I was like, that's insane. How are you going to get all that free food? He was right. Truly, after seven days, whatever avocado they've had sitting, or you know, five dozen avocados, or strawberries, or 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 pineapple, you know, in those plastic containers for people to buy at lunchtime, whatever that is, after seven days, they have a seven-day guarantee. It goes to the dumpster, and at that moment. The avocado that was sitting on the shelf for you to buy and feed your children at, you know, 11 a.m. at 12 p.m. becomes garbage. And we raised pigs with no grain, nothing that was bought at a feed store and just entirely from, you know, you know, it's like the Manson thing, right? The Manson family where they like uh, dumpster diving. But right. We raised 400 pound pigs with just garbage, but it's not garbage. It's totally reasonable food. And then you think, holy, what, what, why is this? Why is after seven days, nobody is judging the food based on whether it's going to make you sick, but just based on some arbitrary, you know, lawyer's promise. It's so crazy. It's utterly crazy. And, but there's no, no stepping away from the system other than to do it like you're doing. Yeah. And I, I feel like that, I, I don't know, it's almost noble at this point. Like what, how many people are going to be able to do that? Well, uh, we feel that way. And that's how, you know, I'm constantly telling myself I am noble. That's the word I use. Actually, I am noble and everyone else is un ignoble. Right. Thank goodness. I've, yeah, no, I, I think some of it is just a, a, a maybe it's guilt from being mean as a teenager, and so maybe. I'm like fixing it by you know being extra loving when I'm, you know, killing chickens for my kids to eat. I think there's something to that. I think I think people that have been through a, you know a rough stretch early on tend to right themselves and and stay pretty pretty kind for the rest if they're able to do it. Trying. 
yeah i mean i think it is still work to achieve that you know to overcome the inertia but um it's worth it if you're making yourself unhappy being who you are we um we, we use you know after now mocking like social media and people watching their phones and TVs and all that stuff. We do like post on social media, uh, just, you know, like kind of to update the grandparents, but really uh, our friends from California and all that of what we're up to. And it's amazing when we post a picture of like a Turkey on a table at Thanksgiving, people are just, Oh, hundreds thousands of likes oh that's beautiful look it's a turkey but if you show you know here i am like it not a brutal picture i'm not ever gonna post something of some bloody but just here's the process of this turkey that was part of my family that my kids played with and chased in the yard and knew its name and hugged becoming meat Right. Like in any, any version of that, like it's being, it's being bled out in a, in a, um, uh, um, humane way. People freak people, write People I've loved since high school, write Angry things, but they don't have a problem going to, you know, in an out burger. And <laughs> that's the disconnect is really, um, it's built into all of us, sadly. It is. It's been, I mean, we've been whitewashed with the start, the same story for a really long time. Yeah. And it's taken, I mean, it's super ingrained in our, in anyone our age. And well, I don't know. It's been going on for a long time. I feel like we, we just went so far the wrong direction now with our, the processing and what we do. I don't know. I'll get into super bummer land if I start talking about it, but no, it's okay. Because there's guys like me always who are going to like, it's not bummer land. It's okay. There's, there's, we gotta, we gotta talk about it. If we're going to figure out how to undo it. Right. A little but bit. You, I mean, you said you, you and your wife watched food Inc. And that was like the impetus, right? Changed our lot. Changed. I swore at that moment. I, you know, I'm, you know, I can't totally every once in a while, you're on the road and you're stuck and you are getting food at Burger King at some roadside, you know, like, but very limited. Mostly, yeah. I really do not want to put something in my mouth that I knew had this horrible life because it's just doesn't, it sucks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I wish I could meet that, that, that documentarian because what an amazing film to have totally shifted our our take on the world and made me read books and and go from being, you know, a movie director and editor in Los Angeles to a, you know, a homesteader and a guy on a farm in Maine. It could not be more opposite.
Okay, so tell me about your movie, and then we'll oh, end with so that. I'm going to make this not, like, super pitchy, but there's no way to... Whenever somebody... Whenever you say, tell me about your movie, I made a movie, and so it's going to sound a little little pitchy. But I will I will tell you this. It, it is... Uh, I've made uh, six horror films, uh, feature films with, like, varying degrees of... of um, success and some of them i think are poopy because somebody else financed them and you're gonna do what they say and they would have like danny trejo as the lead which is amazing i'm so lucky to get to to do that uh, or or i made a movie with crispin glover as the the evil magician that's so oh. to get to work like i got to work with crispin glover it's incredible. wait which which film is that it's a movie called The Wizard of Gore, which is a remake of a 1969 film by the, the, the famously terrible filmmaker Herschel Gordon Lewis, who I learned about because I'm from Baltimore and John Waters loves Herschel Gordon Lewis and was hugely influenced by him. Um, and he made these like, you know, he made Blood Feast. He made um, Wizard of Gore, Color Me Blood Red. He made great movies. I mean, great, original, yeah, great, terrible. I've seen the original Wizard of Gore. My my friend in high school used to crack up at that title, and we would just laugh about it all the time without having seen it. And then we finally did. Um, but you you did a remake of that with I Chris. Do you do you remember the movie? Do you remember the original? I really don't. I I was, yeah. I'm ashamed to say I don't remember any of it. So imagine a movie made by somebody who has never done psychedelics but has made the most psychedelic movie by accident because they just were too sloppy to try to make a movie any other way. I always wonder if the editor had a hand in like being like, no, no, I can save this. And was like a big pothead or I don't, I don't know why that movie is so weird. It is super duper cuckoo. It's about <laughs> a magician who kills women volunteers on stage who then are fine like right he does something horrible with it the first movie the chainsaw he cuts a woman up with a chainsaw before texas chainsaw thanks um, and uh and then they're fine this is like you know late 60s no nudity but lots of you know very very ketchupy blood um and a reporter who has a, a a morning talk show called like Housewives Coffee Clutch or something like that starts to track down this this magician's acts and figures out that, that these women are actually turning up dead a day later from the wounds from the stage even though they appeared fine. Okay. It doesn't make any sense. The movie's nuts. It looks like it was shot in about a weekend. It's just, it's a big mess, but it's weird and fascinating and kind of psychedelic. And so I remade it with Crispin Glover as the magician and Bijou Phillips is one of the, I mean, it's, it's like dream cast of people That's that weird. I always wanted to work with. And, and it's weird and it's about post-punk Los Angeles, um, in downtown, like the downtown we were talking about earlier, uh, in 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 the show, that downtown where it's like Loft District, 
nobody's paid attention to these parts of town for like 60 years and yeah it's how did you, that's so cool how did you um did you just send the script to crispin glover or how did he come to be in it essentially i mean it never is actually that easy we went no. through a casting director and everybody cares about money and crispin certainly does too but he won't just sign on to anything but you know he makes his own movies so he needs financing too and he he um yeah yeah i just saw him i just saw him speak and present one of his movies just recently and he talked about doing that and it's similar to what cassavetti said about you know he just is in movies just to finance yeah you know but it sounds like he would rather pick things that he likes he's uh, pretty careful i mean that guy you know all actors have to a little bit give give over to the actor's life and you know i don't want to say like you know sell themselves but but a little bit there's that but crispin's pretty careful and yet also manages to make his own very spectacularly weird films right have you seen them? Have you seen some oh, of his? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, intense, I think the guy is a genius. I think he's a marketing genius. I think that what's amazing about him is that he's he's such a good self-marketer and he knows what his audience is and he knows who he's supposed to be. I feel like I was so lucky and we'll 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 talk about the movie that I made afterwards with Gore in a minute, but I feel like I was so lucky because Crispin does not drop the curtain to show you who he really is very often. Even as a filmmaker making a movie with him where he was a lead, he did not want to reveal himself very easily. But I had moments where I was like, oh, Jesus, that's who you are. And, <laughs> um, and I feel so lucky, you know, just in life to have had that experience. That's very cool, man. He's I've been a big fan of his for as long as I've known about him. And I agree yeah, that he's yes. and he's he's doing it on so many levels. For sure. Uh, I love I love his books, the his like remaking of books. Yep. Um his presentation of those is some of the funniest, weirdest shit. But then he'll just start to speak about something else and he's not that he he knows that's a persona and he can use it when needed and he can drop it for but sure he, but he is a, a pretty odd dude he's really smart and he's really um from i mean this is all the stuff i gathered just from seeing him speak once but also from consuming most of his work uh including some of the mainstream stuff that he's not necessarily proud of but i still consider it the best, you know, he's like the best performance of several of the films that he's in, in my opinion. My uh, kids think that I'm a hero, not because I made a bunch of fucking sleazy horror movies, but because the guy in Back to the Future is in one of my movies. <laughs> that's still incredibly rad because, let's face it, Back to the Future is one of the time travel movies that works, you know, really well. It's it is uh it's it's a slice of Americana. Yeah, it's pretty great if you're especially if you're a boy who grew up 
at the right age, yep. like you and I were, uh, to see that movie. Um, but anyway, let's talk about the movie you made after. So after Wizard of Gore, because Wizard of Gore was like a two and a half million dollar movie and was sucky to deal with the financiers, I was like, I I just want to make a movie where I have total control. I don't have to fight with them about anything. I want to make, you know, a movie for a couple hundred thousand dollars that's about something I care about, that's important, and is, you know, like my Cronenberg film. And so, in 2008, my writing partner, the guy who writes most of my movies, wrote a movie about school shooters that was essentially a movie that takes place in hell about school shooters, somebody who performs, who's sent to a school to, in a kind of a breakfast club style um, attempt to uh, uh, undo the wrongs that they've done and they discover that they're intrinsically linked to a to a school shooting. Okay. A hellscape. And that movie we financed for like, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, shot it in Baltimore where I'm from, with no names, but Pat Moran, who I don't know how much you know about John Waters, but John Waters' partner for all his you know, Pink Flamingos and, and, and Desperate Living and these, you know, seminal films. His partner was this woman, Pat Moran, who when I was a kid in Baltimore was like the rock star of the town who went on to become uh, a casting director who, who cast um, The Wire and won the Emmy year in and year out for her casting of that show because she was casting like local talent who were genuinely you know like whatever thug um gangsters who were also super compelling and charismatic and she was brilliant she was a huge component of making this movie my producer at the time was a high school friend uh, who who was in Hairspray. He was on the council, so he knew her. and So she helped me put together a cast of high schoolers that were actually high schoolers because it's always driven me nuts when I watch movies and you're watching these high school scenarios play out with, you know, 22-year-olds. So right. we cast kids right out of high school in Baltimore filmed in Baltimore and it's it's a horror movie about school shootings basically and I'm super summing I, I'm not gonna like give the whole pitch but that's basically the thing right and okay. um, finding kids that can act who are 17 is not it's not easy and and I was given the privilege of working with them for, you know, several months before we shot. So we got to rehearse and made the movie, shot the movie, shot in Baltimore, and then ran out of money 
in um, 2009. So at the time, like Columbine and, 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 you know, very little else was kind of top of mind. But right. as the, um, as the years wore on and I was raising money or just, you know, trying to finish the movie myself, because we left Baltimore with like 70% of the movie shot, but I had 30% more to shoot in Los Angeles, just with friends and in, 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 you know, stolen locations or whatever else. It was, um, it was, uh, it was difficult. And Sounds like it. it went on for 10 years. For 10 years, I financed the movie from whatever I could, you know, bring home from editing other people's projects or whatever else. And rather than like, you know, feeding my kids or whatever. And this is all while we're, you know, switching from Los Angeles to Maine to homesteading and all that. We, um, we managed to, to finish the film. Little by little and piece by piece for 10 years. And last year, we were done. Premiered in Brussels, which is a, a, a big film festival for like genre films. Um, and then in your hometown of San Francisco, we premiered at uh, another Hole in the Head. That was our U.S. premiere. Uh, last, what was that? Like September, October. Shit, I wish I'd known about it. It was wonderful. I would have gone. I wish you'd known about it too. <laughs> and now that uh, it's been picked up and it's coming out and and that's that's the next step. But it's been I mean, ten years is a long road for a movie. To carry it, to go to bed every night not knowing how you're you know how are you going to approach tomorrow to get it done? I'm amazed that you were able to carry it off while also starting a family and moving cross country and changing your whole way of life. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I think 10 years is impressive given that you were doing all that other stuff as well, but good, good for you, man, for sticking with it. That's incredible. Thank you. It feels really good. It's, it's, Honestly, I've made it's my sixth movie and I love all my films. I'm very proud of the movies I've made, but it it is really um in my heart. I really uh the themes in the film ring very true with my spirit and that that seems so important. Absolutely. That's kind of the most important, isn't it? When you're talking about your work. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, good for you, man. That's very cool. So what's it called? Can I, can oh, you give me? Yeah, no, it's called the dead ones, the dead ones. Okay. And I'll, I'm going to want to know the names of your other five so I can list them in the outro. Sure. It's but, um, my first movie is The Attic Expeditions. Okay. Then I made All Souls Day, Dio de los Muertos. That's the one with Danny Trejo. That's not very good. 
but he's the lead. That's like that's rare to see him in a lead ever. He's amazing in it. And I'm I'm not sure how he's gonna be because um yeah, because he's playing a basically a gangster in eighteen sixty and I didn't know how he'd deal with that. But he pulled it off, huh? He did. Nice. Um and then I made a movie called The Thirst. And then I made Wizard of Gore, which is The Wizard of Gore with Christopher Glover. And then after that was um, The Theater Bazaar with Udo Kier, who actually performed my wedding, married my wife. That's awesome. So proud of that. My That's... kids are going to love that eventually, right? Definitely. Yeah, what a weirdo. What a, I mean, I don't know him, but but what a great... But you know who he is. Yeah, I do. I can picture his face and I can I'm sort of seeing him in, in glimpses of movies. You take this woman to be your bride. <laughs> you have her and love her. <laughs> Amazing. So good. That's very cool. So that okay, so that was all of them, and then your newest. Yes. Well, congratulations, man. That's cool. I, I mean, I've, it's not a genre that I know much about. And in some ways, I've avoided it because I'm fairly, uh, I can be sensitive to, to stuff, to gore. Uh, yeah. It's one, kind of one of the only things that I'm sensitive about. Um, but so, but now I'm, I definitely want to pursue some of your work. And uh, if not all, maybe I'll be your, your biggest fan. Um, so if there's a way to to watch those, what would it be? I think most of them are, are on, you know, Amazon and, and, and um, yeah, Amazon is probably the way at the moment. Okay. And um, I think, yeah, looking at the time, I think we should probably wrap it up. But are you, do you feel like you were able to talk about what you wanted to? I think so. Did, did, so do you feel like I did okay? I think you did amazingly well. I think it's very courageous to just say yes to, to an open format, long form conversation uh, with somebody you've never met who just has, you know, a little bit and, and who you couldn't find anything about out about <laughs> did you get like enough to make a show and you feel like absolutely yeah i'm gonna i mean probably more than enough I, you're gonna be in you'll have an episode and then show up in the outtakes a, a few months later maybe it's good it's better to have outtakes as an editor i would definitely say i when you say outtakes i say yes takes good. Uh, i'm glad to hear that yeah not everybody wants it or knows that they want it. I think most people hear like leftovers when they hear outtakes. No, no, no. But Take out all the stuff that you don't think is good. That's better for me. <laughs> I know that. Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate you being so willing. And uh, it was great to meet you in this way. And I hope to meet you in person before too long. I feel the same. Um. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing your your life and your take on life. And uh, I, I look forward to uh, keeping in touch.
I love that you're making a show where people just talk and <laughs> it's not like the structure isn't super um, pitchy. I love that. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. I, I really appreciate the feedback. It's important to know that somebody other than me likes doing it this way. For sure. So I'm glad. And thanks for being amenable. And you were, you did remarkably well on, with no, <laughs> no background, no practice. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, it was great talking to you, Jeremy. Talking to you too. Uh, be well. I, I, um, yeah, I'll be thinking about your way of life. It's, it's very enticing uh, for a city dweller who's pretty burnt out. You ever mean? Come here. I'm gonna make you an amazing duck confit. Okay. <laughs> I may have to take you up on that. I haven't been to Maine since I was a kid, but I would love to. I know it's beautiful. We make amazing prosciutto here, and homemade <laughs> wine. I don't know if you drink, but the homemade wine is spectacular. I don't drink, but I, I appreciate the offer, and I would appreciate what how it's how it comes about. I love I love that it's with love. That's that's what makes it good. For sure. <laughs> cool, ma'am. I'll see you soon. All right. Take it easy. I'll talk to you soon. Preston, thank you. Thank you. Bye. for listening everybody that was my new friend Jeremy Kasten that's K-A-S-T-E-N so uh, you heard him mention the six films that he's directed uh, one of which is going to come out soon Um, we didn't discuss actually the release date but it's got to be pretty soon Uh, that's the dead ones and then the other ones you can see um, trailers for on his website which is jeremycaston.com. I myself am someone who is pretty wimpy when it comes to horror movies, Um, but I know there are a lot of horror film fans out there, so if you are one of those, please go check out his films. And uh, what else? Um, Oh, I wanted to correct. In the beginning, we were talking about the Coen brothers and Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell. And I just couldn't, I didn't feel like any of them were for from Ann Arbor. I felt like I would have known if they were. But I looked it up, and Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell are both from Royal Oak, Michigan. And the Coen brothers are from Minnesota, which is often confused. It's one of many M states. But um, anyway, I wanted to set the record straight on that. And lastly, uh. I am now on Patreon. Uh, I, Since my career as a dog walker has been labeled non-essential in the city of San Francisco, which I and my dogs disagree with and my dog clients, but um, I still want to be ethical and safe and help out the community. So I've been staying home, but that means I have no income. So if you want to help me out, and support the show. Uh, I've been doing this now for two years, every week, with a few exceptions. And um, I want to continue 
making it free for as long as I do it, which is going to be a long time. Um, and I want to make it ad free as well. So the best way to support me would be through Patreon. And the website is Patreon, which is P-A-T-R-E-O-N, in case you've never heard of it, patreon.com slash outspokenpodcast. And there you will find uh, several membership tiers, starting as low as two bucks a month. And there are rewards associated with those tiers. So I want to give you something back in addition to the regular show. There's going to be bonus content and original artwork and uh, exclusive song access and things like that. So if you got a couple bucks to spare and you want to support this podcast, find value in it in any way, uh, I would appreciate it so very much. And I appreciate you regardless of what you do. Uh, You are my fellow human, humans, and uh, I love you. So take that to the bank. Okay, uh, be well, be safe, stay home. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.